0: Our Bible reading this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 2. We're going to, the second chapter, as I said, starting at verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mothers and brothers and disciples. And there they stayed a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem In the temple courts he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at table exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and he drove them all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold sold doves he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Then they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. Here ends our reading.
1: Good morning. My name is Nathan and it is always lovely to be here with you this morning. We are in the book of John and we're going to need God's help. So let's pray before we get started. Lord and Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your powerful and precious word. And we, we just pray, Lord, that this morning you would give us ears to hear. Amen. Before ending up here in Manly, I spent a few years at Bible College. Place called Moore College in at Newtown, um, in the inner west of Sydney, and uh, there were a lot of great things that I did in my time at college. But one of the things that I remember sticks most distinctly for me was the time when a pair of agitated water buffalo decided to go for a run down the middle of King Street. It's an interesting day. Everything stopped when it happened. They came kind of charging right past our building as we were in the middle of a lecture. But cars, pedestrians, cyclists, you name it, everyone wanted to just stop and watch as these two huge livestock came charging down city street. It turns out that they'd actually been participants in the filming of a, a commercial for Samsung. And suddenly they decided they were done. So they escaped their handlers and off they trundle down the street to take a look. In the end, they were found hanging out in the garden of our deputy principal's house. His name was Bill Salia. For the rest of the year, he was known as Bull Salia. <laughs> Followed him for a while. And that day has been burned in my memory just because of how different and unexpected it was. Not unlike the scene described for us in our passage today. This is a story that sticks with you, precisely because of how different and unexpected it is. You know, the day that Jesus got mad and started throwing stuff around. That's a headline you're going to take notice of, isn't it? Because it's different to the polite and well-mannered picture that we usually have of Jesus. And here he is, rocking up to the holiest place on earth, Whip in hand, setting livestock free, overturning people's tables. Can you imagine what the noise would have been like if you were there that day? In the temple, people shouting, animals panicking, coins bouncing off the floor. What a commotion it would have caused. And not just in the temple, but consider the commotion it would have caused throughout the city. As a whole barnyard of animals is set loose. stampede through the streets. That's a day that you would remember, isn't it? It's just so striking. And it begs the question, what exactly is going on here? Why is Jesus flying off the handle? And the answer to that, my friends, is actually the most striking thing about this whole incident. So let's take a closer look. If it is your first time here today, or you haven't joined us for the last few weeks, we have been working through the middle of a series in the Gospel of John. And John's great goal in writing his Gospel is so that those who read it, people like you, people like me, as we open it and read it, that we might come to see the reality of who Jesus is, and that when we see that reality, we might find life. Last week, if you were with us, we saw Jesus kick off his ministry with a wedding miracle where he replaced the stale water of religious ritual with the new wine of Christianity. Immediately following the wedding in Cana, we see this morning, Jesus, his family, his disciples, they swing by Capernaum for a while and then they make the journey up to Jerusalem in time to to participate in the Passover festival. Now, they would not have been the only ones making this journey. It was coming up to the time of Passover, Passover being that Jewish festival whereby Israel remembered the time that God brought them out of Egypt. And it involved sacrifice, sacrificing an animal. And the only acceptable place in order to do that sacrifice was actually in the temple in Jerusalem. So if you're celebrating the Passover, you're going to the temple. I imagine it would have been like one of those super hot weekends here in Manly. We've had a few of them recently. And you walk out onto the Corso, you probably experienced this, and all of a sudden you're hit by a wave. Not from the ocean, but a wave of people heading in the same direction, making that long pilgrimage from the ferry to the beach. You know what I'm talking about, right? It would have been... Flocks and flocks of Jews from around the world just converging on Jerusalem in order to make it in time to sacrifice in the temple. And if you're traveling a long way, you can't just pack your sacrificial lamb into your backpack, can you? That wouldn't really work. So when pilgrims arrived in Jerusalem, they would actually need to purchase an animal in order to sacrifice, And if they wanted to donate money to the temple, they actually had to get it changed first because the temple wouldn't accept just any old foreign cash. They wanted a particular type, so you had to get it changed as well. So I guess the thinking went, well, people are coming to the temple in order to sacrifice, and they're coming a long way in order to do it. Why don't we make it easier for everyone and just let the merchants set up in the temple courts? That way it's kind of a one-stop offering shop for everyone when they turn up looking for their sacrificial needs. Now, it's a lucrative system for the merchants because you've got your buyers all just flocking straight to you, and it's also convenient for those people looking to find a sacrifice. It's a system that worked pretty well. That is, until the day Jesus turned up and all heaven broke loose, so to speak. Take a look. Verse 14, what do we see? Jesus Enters the temple and he finds the animal merchants, the cattle and the sheep. He sees the money changers, and then in verse 15, it gets real. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both the sheep and the cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables. Wow. Last week, Jesus kept the party pumping didn't he, turning water into wine, but this week we see he's shutting the party down, wielding a makeshift whip. What a turn of events that is. And we rightly ask the question, why is he doing this? What is going on here, Jesus? What are you doing? Well, there's really three reasons we're going to have a look at this morning together about what it is Jesus is doing you see, the temple had been defiled. We'll have a look at that in a moment. There's authority that needs to be revealed, and there's glory that will be predicted. Temple defiled, authority revealed, glory predicted. What is going on? Well, the first part of the, the answer is that God's temple had been defiled. That's what Jesus is getting at in verse 16 where he says, stop turning my father's house into a market. The temple was the holiest place on earth, the epicenter of the Jewish faith, the location of God's glorious presence amongst his people. It was was a place of sacrifice and confession and thanksgiving, a place of pilgrimage and reverence. And yet the Jews had Somehow, just permitted it to become a noisy, smelly marketplace that was more concerned about commerce than it was about worshipping the true and living God. Now, to better appreciate just how grave an error this was, we're going to jump back for a moment into the Old Testament, into a book, the book called Ezekiel. The book of Ezekiel was written at a time while Israel was stuck in exile. They were cut off from their land, the temple lay in ruins, and towards the end of this book God gives to Ezekiel a series of grand visions, all to do with the temple, that hold out promise Israel is going to return to the land, Israel will return to the land and rebuild the temple. In chapter 43 of these visions, it comes to a climax with the return of God's glory filling this new temple. It describes the scene, and then God says, This "This is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet. This is where I will live among the Israelites forever. I think it's hard for us to fully comprehend just how amazing those words would have been to Ezekiel and to Israel as they received them. Because it meant that God was coming back for them, God was going to return them to the land, and, and He was willing to dwell with His people again. But there is a sharp edge to this vision as Ezekiel receives it, because along with the hope and the promise, there's also a warning as God kind of outlines what it was that got Israel into trouble in the first place. And he follows up this verse with, The people of Israel will never again defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings by their prostitution and the funeral offerings for their kings at their death. When they placed their threshold next to my threshold, their doorposts next to my doorposts, with only a wall between me and them, they defiled my holy name by their detestable practices. So I destroyed them in my anger. You see, the Israel of old had defiled the temple. They'd followed other gods, they'd practiced pagan rituals, and then they'd brought it all into the temple with them and put it side by side with the living God. And it dishonored him. It defiled his name. And it was such a grievous error, it so angered God that it led to Israel's destruction and exile. That is why Jesus is angry in today's passage. Because by turning the temple into a marketplace... His father's very honor was at stake. His holiness had been defiled and his glory had been dismissed. And so the son's righteous anger had been stirred. The second thing that Jesus is doing here by clearing out the temple is refi- revealing his authority. It's, it's interesting to see the way that the Jews who were there saw all this happen, the way that they responded to Jesus. They don't refute his accusation or kind of have some kind of comeback. Like, well, you know, where else are people going to find their sacrificial animals? Where else are they going to change their money? It's got to happen somewhere. They don't say that, do they? Instead, they say in verse 18, take a look, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? So the temple is in utter chaos. There's this guy they don't know running around wielding a whip and their response is to say, yeah, we'd like to see some ID, please. Show us some ID. (laughs) Stop turning my father's house into a market, Jesus had said. There's a big claim there, isn't there? My father's house. The only person who could get away with doing what Jesus just did is if that person had been directly sent by God a prophet, perhaps even the Messiah, God's long-awaited anointed one. So by clearing the temple that day, essentially what Jesus is doing is he's standing there saying, I am he. Hundreds of years before this, prophet Malachi predicted an event like this. He said, then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple the messenger of the covenant, whom you desire, will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. Like a refiner's fire. We read this morning, don't we? When Jesus vi- visited the temple that day, there was no one that could stand, no one who could resist his purification. So he's standing there in the very epicenter of the Jewish faith and he's declaring emphatically, I have come, the Lord has come. And in the face of his claims to divine authority, all they can manage to ask him is, okay, uh, can you prove it? If you really are sent by God, how about you give us a sign, a miracle, and that will seal it. Now, look, I don't know if they genuinely wanted him to actually do a sign. Like, maybe they were just saying that to him so that when he then wasn't able to produce a sign, they could arrest him and punish him. I'm not sure. But what Jesus says is brilliant. It's brilliant. And it brings us to the third thing that's happening here. Glory predicted. Sure thing, Jesus says. Yeah, I've got a sign for you. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll build it back up for you. How about that? Now, it's a brilliant response because there is no way these guys asking for a sign are going to destroy the temple. Like, there's just no way that's going to happen. It's taken them 46 years to build it, they say. So, the sign that Jesus offers to them is so extreme, they're not going to risk it, they're not going to take him up on the offer, and they drop the request. Brilliant. But his response is actually even more brilliant because what he's actually doing is predicting his death and resurrection. The sign Jesus is offering them that day is cross-shaped. John tells us in verse 21, the temple Jesus was calling on them to destroy was his own body. His own body, which is exactly what would end up happening a couple of years later, right? On a Roman cross. Jesus offers this as the sign of his authority precisely because Jesus' death and resurrection will be the crowning moment of his glory, the ultimate sign which proves Jesus' divine authority. The Jews that day thought he was talking about a temple of bricks and mortar, but he was actually talking about himself as a temple. Interesting. Last week, Jesus took the old stale water of Jewish ritual and he turned it into something much, much better. And A similar thing is happening here, I think, in this morning's passage. Whilst standing in the middle of the old temple, Jesus is introducing himself as Israel's new temple. He's announcing that the location of God's glory It's no longer in a building, now it's in a man. Jesus is God's glory. John has been banging on about it since the start of the gospel. Back in those opening verses, if you can remember back, verse 14, he says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. It was there last week as well. If you noticed it, John describes the wedding miracle at Cana as the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. To, today, in our passage, this glory in the flesh comes and visits the temple. The temple, the place where everyone thought God's glory resides. And yet, when Jesus arrives, what does he see? Instead of worship and reverence, he finds cattle and commerce. A hive of activity, noise, bustle, business, and yet for all its activity, Jesus found that the temple was empty. Utterly empty in every way that mattered. The famous Jewish historian Josephus once said that to approaching visitors... To Jerusalem. The temple appeared like a mountain of snow, glistening in the sunlight. It's a good description, I think. And from the outside, it it would have been an impressive building. It would have been awe-inspiring. Perhaps it may have even been glorious on the outside. But once you got within, as Jesus does this day, it was nothing of the sort. And it's what's underneath the surface that actually told the full story. In a way, this event really frames Jesus' whole mission and ministry as we see him time and again throughout all the Gospels, challenging Israel's leadership, who on the surface looked holy and pious, who followed rituals and rules to the letter on the outside, but who lacked any real integrity underneath, who lacked any real connection with the true and living God, just like the temple. In the temple courts that day, Jesus is exposing Israel's heart of stone because they had become more concerned about how they looked, more concerned about what was in it for them by what they stood to gain, rather than having concern for the God whom they served they lost sight of him and in losing sight of him they actually lost sight of everything so that's what jesus was doing that day what does it all mean for us according to the old way you had to pilgrimage to a place to the temple in order to offer your sacrifice you were the agent you were the author of your own piety. But now? Now we no longer pilgrimage to sacrifice. Why? Because Jesus offered the ultimate sacrifice. When he pilgrimaged, the final pilgrimage, not to a temple, but to a cross. And in that final and ultimate act, Jesus takes care of both the pilgrimage and the sacrifice for us, once and for all. And so instead of a pilgrimage, we're called to a relationship. And instead of offering our own measly sacrifices, we're called to trust and accept Jesus' perfect sacrifice. You know, there may be people here this morning who haven't done that yet, and you know you don't have a deep and personal relationship with God. If that is you, can I urge you, don't remain stuck in the old way, because it's no longer about where you go, it's about who you know. And it's no longer about what you do, it's about what He's done. I wonder if you know that. If you would like to find out more, or perhaps you'd actually like to actually be introduced to this God this very morning, can I encourage you, come and find one of us at the front, go to the prayer chapel at the end of the service, there'll be people there to chat and pray with you. That'd be something that would be worth doing if that's you this morning. What about those of us who have been Christian for a while, who come along to church even on a wet and windy weekend, who say the prayers, read the verses, do the good deeds. As we do those things, do we still have reverence for God, for the one that you're doing these things for? As we sing, do we do it because of how it makes us feel rather than because of who it is that we're singing to? When we read God's word, are we doing it just to tick off a box because we know that's what we're supposed to do? Or are we doing it because we actually expect the true and living God to speak to us through his words? When we gather together like this, are we doing it to praise God out of reverence for him and doing that together? Or are we coming along just to catch up with friends or because church is a place where we feel like we belong? As we live the Christian life, are we living it for ourselves or are we living it for Him? Out of routine, checking off boxes, doing it because it's convenient or that's what we've always done out of tradition or because it makes you feel important and superior, whatever it might be. But do you still have reverence for God as you do it? It's quite possible to do all of that on the outside and yet not be quite right within. Just like the Jewish temple. You know, perhaps your life is glittering in the sunlight, but walk around inside and the story is completely different. You can hide it from others, but you can't hide it from God. He can waltz right into your heart just like Jesus does the temple. I wonder if you've ever seen or heard of the show Hoarders. That'll make you feel good about your own mess at home, right? The premise of this show involves houses that have become overrun with clutter. So crowded, in fact, that it ceases to function as a house. There's nowhere to eat, there's nowhere to sleep. There's just mess everywhere. No space or room for anything. It's kind of like what our hearts are like when we begin life with Christ. They're cluttered, they're crowded, full of rubbish. But that's not how it remains. Through the Holy Spirit, through the word of God and prayer, through being with God's people, Jesus actually will clear out your heart, just like he cleared out the temple, piece by piece, bit by bit, refining and purifying and teaching us what it actually means to live for God with our whole lives. As you watch this show, you look at these houses, these poor people who live in these conditions and you wonder how did it, how did they let it get to that point? It's not like you just suddenly find a thousand newspapers and decide that, you know, they're going to fit really well right here next to the fridge. That's not how it works, right? probably happens slowly, over time, bit by bit, until you don't even notice the stuff piling up until it's from ceiling to floor and you're surrounded by garbage. I wonder if that's what actually happened with Israel's temple, over time, bit by bit. God got crowded out. I wonder if you've ever noticed that happening with your own heart. Jesus is clearing out our hearts of all the muck and the garbage. But if we're not careful, we can easily start bringing that stuff back in. It's like us going out to the skip bin and going, Oh, actually, no, I still need that. Sorry. and we start cluttering our heart again, God gets crowded out, crowded by new desires, by essential plans that we hold ourselves to, crowded out by our fears or our doubts, crowded by our pleasures or our grand ambitions. And if it's left unchecked, these things eventually take root in our heart again. So have a think for a moment, an honest moment this morning. What what does Jesus still need to clear out from your heart? What is it that's starting to crowd God out of your life? What's distracting you from worship, from reverence for God? Like water buffalo running down King Street, the story of Jesus clearing the temple is striking. It would have been a day etched into your memory, the day when God's glory visited the temple And found it a shell of its former self. The day when God's son declared himself the new epicenter of faith, reverence and worship. A day that would have shaken Israel's leadership to its very core. I wonder, what impact has it had on you? How about we pray? Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word when it encourages us and uplifts us. And you know, we're thankful for your word in those times when it challenges us, when it cuts us to our heart. Whatever it's done, Lord, for us this morning, we just pray that you would be at work in it and through it. And as we gaze on your glorious Son and give thanks for what he's done for us, we pray, Father, that we would have reverence for you. Amen. We are going to.